2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show with big thinking from across the globe. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and one of the curators of our programme. Last month, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown joined us for a live stream event exploring his insights into the major unfolding crises of the 21st century and his vision for a new era of global order. It's the subject of his new book, Seven Ways to Change the World. Gordon was in conversation with Tom Fletcher, a former diplomat who worked closely with successive British Prime Ministers, including Gordon himself. Tom is now Principal of Hartford College, University of Oxford, and drew many of his questions from the college community. I hope you enjoy their conversation.
0: Oh, I want to start, actually, because we're in Oxford, I know you've been in touch uh, with colleagues here about vaccines, and in particular, how we can build on the success of the Oxford vaccine and the vaccination programme more widely to start to vaccinate uh, the world. How, how are we doing on that effort?
1: Yeah, first of all, can I say, Tom, what a pleasure it is uh, to be on this uh, broadcast uh, with you. I'm sorry I can't be in Oxford uh, with you at this event. As, as you know, I've always said that universities stand for rationality, objectivity, impartiality, the pursuit of truth, the search for knowledge. And I found that these were all the qualities I had to leave behind when I went into politics. So you know a bit about that that as well. I want to start with vaccines, yes, because it's the most immediate issue. You know, when we were dealing with the financial crisis, it was clear what we had to do. We had to sort out the banking system. It had totally failed us. Now, when we're dealing with this crisis, It is vaccination that is going to get us out of this crisis, protecting people against uh, the likelihood that the disease will lead to hospitalisation and then death, not protecting people necessarily against having the disease, but against the consequences in hospitalisation and death. And the tragedy is that having failed in the first year, when we just couldn't get our act together as a world, there was no exchange of information. The disease percolated right across the world. Uh, we didn't share the uh, ventilators. We didn't share the PPE. We didn't really get our act together. And now 4 million people have died. We have had a chance, having found a vaccination, we had a chance to solve the problem. The genius was in the scientists like Sarah Gilbert Oxford who invented the vaccines. We should be getting it around the world. It should be available to everyone. We should be making it possible for even the poorest countries to have it. And the tragedy at the moment is 3 billion vaccines have been produced but only 1% of uh, Africa is fully vaccinated. Only 3% of India, while we've been incredibly successful in Britain, America, and other countries, we've got a world which is half vaccinated or likely to be half vaccinated and half unvaccinated, half protected, half unprotected. And that is an ethical issue. It's also an economic issue because the world economy can't get back to normal until we get people Uh, vaccinated and ready to be able to work uh, free of uh, further lockdowns. And of course, it's an epidemiological issue because nobody is safe until everybody's safe. Everybody lives in fear until nobody lives in fear. Uh, And it's true that if we don't take action, it will come back to haunt us, it will mutate, we've already got variants, uh, and then it will affect us all again. So even the richest countries are not protected as long as the poorest countries aren't. And so the great failure of these last few weeks is we had a G7 meeting, all the leading countries, the wealthiest countries in the world. And while they agreed to share the excess vaccines, that's not enough. It was about 780 million. We need 11 billion vaccines in total. And that just hasn't been provided. So what we're witnessing, again, is the failure of international cooperation. We know we're all affected. We know we're dependent on each other. But you've got to ask yourself, why is it that when the world's richest countries get round the table, we couldn't agree to make sure that we funded the cost of vaccinating the whole world. And it's relatively cheap, to be honest. It's about, I think we estimated about 30 pence per person in Britain in the advanced countries per week to be able to vaccinate the whole world. Not a huge cost at all, given the costs of what we are losing in production and jobs and everything else through not being able to get the economy back to normal. So this is a moral failure and we've got to find a way of rectifying it.
0: So you used to always tell me um, to to worry less about diplomacy and more about results. I think you're saying that the Cornwall summit then was, you'd grade that a
1: fail. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Look, I've been at lots of, you you were giving the story of uh, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy at this summit in London in 2009. I've been been at some ridiculous summits. I mean, I, I went to Paris, I think you might have been there, Tom, at the beginning of the economic crisis in 2008, when the banks were all collapsing around us. And we had all these people there. We had Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, Sarkozy, France. We had Berlusconi, Italy. We had the head of the Central Bank. We had the European Union. But also, we're sitting around a table, talk for an hour. I was actually saying, look, we've got a bigger crisis than you think, because it's not just America that's hit. It's going to be Europe that's going to be hit very badly. And then we broke up with them. And suddenly, we had Berlusconi saying, amateurs, he said, amateurs. And we thought, here's Berlusconi, the businessman, politician. He's got all the solutions to this problem. Amateurs, he kept saying, amateurs, he said. And then he said, don't they realise we've got a press conference in an hour and no leader has brought a makeup artist with them? <laughs> and he was more interested in the image that we present than beginning to solve the problems. And so some of these summits are, are ridiculous because they get nowhere. Some can get every, get, get somewhere. But you've got to have an agenda. You've got to force the agenda. You've got to be clear what you want to do. You've got in a crisis to get to the heart of the problem, but you've also got to be two or three steps ahead of events. You cannot be behind the curve. And too often in this crisis, we've been behind the curve and we've got to learn lessons from that. We cannot afford another few years of prevarication and not getting to the root of the problem and getting things done.
0: I think think that was also the summit where um, you went into a one-to-one with Van Rompuy, the head of the European Commission. And I said, you know, you really need to go in with some tact and delicacy uh, here, Gordon. And you came out afterwards and said, don't worry, I was very diplomatic. And out of the other door,
1: Van Rompuy came and he was shaking, (laughs) shaking like a leaf afterwards. Look, we've had some uh, terrible uh, sort of uh, debates in Europe, and that's one of the reasons why it's always been tension between Britain and Europe. I remember Delore, who was the president of the European Commission, telling me about Mrs. Thatcher. Now, Mrs. Thatcher was, presented herself as very anti-European, and he was, of course, very pro-European. And he kept saying to me, Mrs. Thatcher, Mrs. Thatcher, she hates me. She hates me for seven reasons. And he went through them, because I'm French, because I'm European, because I'm a socialist, a bureaucrat, a European. I can't remember the rest, but he said, she hates me for seven reasons. So Sometimes diplomacy is quite difficult, um, and uh, sometimes people are very difficult to negotiate with. So then can I just get you to try to answer
0: the question you posed then? I mean, Why is it that we can't persuade the, the, the countries that do have the vaccines to do more? I mean, let me take you actually, Charlie Hancock uh, from the, the Cherwell newspaper who's one of our students um, here. She says, how, how are we going to spur action from the producers of the vaccines? Do you think that these new variants, the Delta variant and so on, will that make a difference? And how do we, when you've got those leaders in the room, what, what makes them change their minds?
1: I, I think what happened here was, that they wanted to do something, but they'd underestimated the scale of the challenge. I think what's happened in the last year is that leaders have got themselves so locked into their national issues that they haven't understood that this is a global uh, pandemic that cannot be solved without coordinated action. So they're very busy thinking about lockdowns, about quarantines, and they've got to think about that and how they vaccinate their own population but didn't quite understand that unless you vaccinate every country, in every country, you can't solve this particular disease. And it was as true of smallpox as it is of uh, now of of this particular disease. So I think there was a lack of vision here. And I think this can be corrected at the G20. I mean, it's going to take weeks to be able to do this. But you can't have a situation where only 1% of Africa is vaccinated, maybe 2%, 3%. So you're not even vaccinating the nurses in the front line. You're not vaccinating the most vulnerable people. And so you've got to ramp up production. You've got to create a virtuous circle. But it starts with saying, we will fund this. We, the richest countries, are prepared to fund this. Then you will get a guarantee from the manufacturers that they'll ramp up capacity. Then you can get it into every continent instead of just one or two continents. And then you've got the supply that you need because this looks as if it's not going to be a vaccine that's needed only for one year is going to need be needed continuously to protect people against the, uh, the disease. And so we've got maybe three months where in the next G20 meeting, which is the group of 20 leading countries, you said it's usually 23 that turn up at the meeting, and uh, it, it was wrongly named the G20. But you've got this group of people meeting in Italy in October, November. And I think this is the time where you've got to make a decision. It would cost about $50 billion. But remember, President Biden alone has put two trillion dollars up to save the American economy, and this is only a fraction of that shared between all the richest countries in the world. We've got a plan, we've got a burden-sharing formula. It could be done. It's a question of political will now. And when you look around that room,
0: and we say around that table of 23, if the, if the seven can't do it, or at least the 10 leaders who go to the G7 summit, you know where do you see the leadership from? Is you, you mentioned Biden? Are we are we safely
1: out of this Trump era now? Out of this era of national distancing? we've still got the danger of, of nationalism being the dominant ideology. Uh, I, I, I think uh, President Biden has made a huge uh, effort uh, to re-engage multilaterally. Uh, but, you know, America uh, used to operate multilaterally in a unipolar era. For the last few years, America has tended to operate unilaterally in a multipolar era. And I think uh, President Biden wants things to move, but we've got to get some uh, uh, coordination with America, Europe, China in particular, but bringing in India, Africa, and Latin America, obviously, uh, as well. And I think that's possible. You will never agree on everything. There are huge issues with China. Human rights is, is one of them that I never uh, want to uh, underestimate the, the, the importance of it uh, and, and what we've got to say to the Chinese about the respect of human rights. But where you can agree in the interests of moving the world forward, I think you should agree. Climate change is one. Vaccination and health policy is another. Economic recovery is is another. Now, if we could coordinate activity on these issues, as we did in 2009 for a brief period, when we got the world out of a recession and prevented, I think, a depression, if we could do this now, I think you would show that cooperation works. And that would, of course, be the signal uh, for cooperation perhaps to work in other areas too. You know, John Kennedy was the President of America he gave this great speech in 1962 in Philadelphia, the home of the independence declaration. He said, America had, had a declaration of independence. We now need a declaration of interdependence. And that's really what we need, countries to recognize that our fate depends on others and we can not actually solve problems without working together. I, I was asked, you know, in the financial crisis, what do you take out of this? Is it not? It's the economy, stupid, which was an old phrase of Bill Clinton. You know, it's the economy. Everything revolves around the economy. I said, no, I take out of this financial crisis. Global problems need global solutions. And that's what we've got to think about.
0: You mentioned Bill Clinton there. And one of the questions in from the students is, um, you know, who would you want round that table? Who is in your dream uh, G7 Then the leaders you work with, I suppose? Who did you most
1: admire? The leader I, I most admired, funnily enough, was, was never at a G7, uh, uh, around a G7 table that I was at, and that's Nelson Mandela. The interesting thing about this I- I leadership is, you know, Mandela was never an expert on detail. You know, if you'd gone to a meeting, he probably wouldn't have read most of the papers. I mean, I'm afraid. And that's not a good sign, of course, uh, in, in normal circumstances. But he did have a clear vision. You know, he had a clear vision of a multiracial society in South Africa, and then a multiracial world. And he'd come to that through his long experience of being in prison. And, you know, the night before he left prison, he told me this when we met, and and I think you were with me on one of the occasions I met Nelson Mandela, and I I was very lucky to have a friendship with him, uh, you know, after he came out of prison and for many years, and I'm still very friendly with someone who does a huge amount in the world, his his widow, Gratia Michelle. But, you know, he called the prisoners together the night before he was released, and he said to them, look, we are going to be released tomorrow, we can go out and get revenge. These people have hanged our friends, they've executed, they've, I I, I myself, I think he, he explained, had had tuberculosis, I was under threat of death. We've got every reason for recrimination and for retaliation. But if we do that, he said, South Africa will be a bloodbath. We will never have a united society. We will never get a society where people can live together." So go out there and let us practice the politics of reconciliation. And, you know, the great thing about Mandela is there was no bitterness. 27 years in prison, he even invited his jailers and his prosecutors to his inauguration as president. He was prepared to forgive and and, and forget and and move on. And so he had a vision. And, that you know, leadership is about having a vision, giving people a hopeful vision. It can't be a negative vision. It's got to be about hope. being able to communicate it, which sometimes we fall down on, but that's what you've got to be able to do and to bring people along with you. And it's really important that you create this idea that we're in this together. Now, Mandela did that. And I think he gives us a lesson about how to lead in the modern world. You've got to get your message across to people and you've got to persuade people that by working together, you can uh, achieve things that you can't do by just working in isolation on your own.
0: So we've been looking in this series, actually, Gordon, on 21st century survival
1: skills um, at the at the things that people wish they'd
0: known when they were 21. And would that be on
1: your list? I I, I think so. Look, look, you know, survival skills is is it sounds as if uh, you know it's uh, it's life and death, and of course, if it's life and death, you've got to take sort of you've got to take big big decisions. I think you've got to have a message of hope. You know, you think when you're in your uh, 20s as you start off you know if I can only uh, you know learn this up and get detailed answers to these questions and if I've got an interview that's coming my way or if I'm doing an exam if I can do all that I think you've also got to think about the bigger purpose of what you're doing and you sometimes it, it is difficult to stand back and say well you know what am I trying to achieve and how can we achieve what I'm trying to achieve and are other people trying to achieve it with me And I think you have got to have a sense of the bigger vision. You know, one of the books I read when I was at the university was uh, uh, Clockwork Orange uh, by Anthony Burgess. And it's a fascinating story because he was a Christian who wanted to communicate a message. So how do you get this book, Clockwork Orange, which is about violence? It's about anybody who reads it, and, and I suppose less people have read it than have seen the film by Stanley Kubrick, Clockwork Orange. You've got this picture of a descent into violence, uh, and uh antisocial behavior people actually doing things for all the wrong reasons and so the book is actually nothing to do with christian ethics it seems a book that sort of is almost uh, you know glorifying violence and then you find out that antony burgess had written 20 chapters of that book and then he'd written the 21st chapter which was about redemption that this young man who had been engaged in violence had seen the errors of his ways he'd repented he was changing life was going to be different because what he'd done was wrong. And when they did the American edition of the book, they only did chapters 1 to 20. And chapter 21 was completely missing. And the film missed out on 21 and ended on this uh, violent note rather than on this note about uh, redemption. So poor um, Burgess could not transmit the message he wanted to transmit. And he regretted that all his life. So you've got to be clear about the message you're trying to transmit. And it's usually a big idea And what dominates uh, what you want to do, if you're 20 and 21, you're thinking of the next stage of your life, you've got to think, you know, stand back, there is a bigger us, there is a bigger purpose, we've got to find a way of of talking about the, the big picture, and the big picture matters.
0: I'm trying to imagine you, Gordon, as a 21-year-old uh, student charging around with the clockwork orange. I mean, did you always have this sense that, a sort of sense of drive and a, a kind of desire to get into these
1: sorts of arguments? Well, that- yeah, I think clockwork orange just came a bit later. I think I was a postgraduate then, and, and I, I was, a, I then became a lecturer, and then I became a politician. You know, I, I enjoyed teaching at a university, and I, I would have been quite happy to continue uh, uh, teaching. But there were issues in my hometown, uh, you know, poverty, unemployment. There were issues I just wanted to do something about. And so that's what drove me into into politics. But I I enjoyed uh, uh, teaching and probably uh, maybe I should have stayed as a teacher.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, it links to a question from Theresa Taylor, who's one of our uh, grads here, who wonders, and she's actually a politics student, but she's wondering, did a study of history help you become a politician? Did it help you when you were uh, in leadership
1: positions? I think so. But, you know, it's back to what I was saying. You've got to see the bigger picture in everything you do. There is a real danger because we're all becoming specialists. And education is about specialization to a large extent. We're we're encouraged to specialize in a whole series of disciplines. I think you're writing about this, Tom, about the general purpose of education is to develop the whole personality and character and and, and to be based on values. And I think you and I were involved in a project that you actually initiated in, in Lebanon where you introduced as the ambassador into the curriculum of the schools Interreligious religious uh, teaching so that people could understand each other's religions. I think history helps you get the bigger picture. I think other subjects are also capable of uh, of doing that in the humanities. Uh, and I think there's always a danger that we become too specialist and we uh, retreat as economics did. And, and I, I don't know how many of the people on this are, are, are looking at economics as a subject, but economics tended to retreat into mathematical economics and, and lost sight of what Adam Smith called political economy which is the study not just of uh, the mechanics but the study of the purposes of uh, of economic activity.
0: So I want to get back into some of the substance of um, how we change the world but first actually another leadership question actually from Caleb one of the students who says have you
1: got any advice for Gareth Southgate? <laughs> no I think he's, he should be giving us advice as politicians. <laughs> I think he has done uh, brilliantly you know I'm, I'm a supporter of uh, Scotland and uh, uh, and, and whatever happens, we we will uh, uh, pride ourselves on the fact that England did not beat us in this match and it's beaten every other team. Uh, but I wish him well. But I think what he's done is capture the spirit of uh, of the country as a multiracial, diverse country where people actually value each other. I mean, after all, this English team has uh, many people who have roots in Asian communities and Afro-Caribbean communities and Africa itself. And many uh, players that could have played for Ireland actually, because their, their parents were either Irish or their grandparents were Irish. So it is a multiracial team, multi-ethnic. and I think he's capturing the spirit of an inclusive uh, Englishness. And I think he's he, he's really, um, you know, he's he's seen as a leader of the country now in, in in so many different ways. And I think he's making people believe it is possible for us all to work together. It's possible for us to cooperate, and it's possible for us to see the virtues. In, in different aspects of our national character. So I don't want to comment on his, uh, his, his choice of, uh, of, of players. Uh, other people are better at doing that than I am, although I follow his choices very closely. Uh, but I think he has captured the spirit of the country in a way that perhaps no other manager has done in recent times. So,
0: so is football coming home? Can you, can you give us a scoop on whether you think that
1: will <laughs> Look, I, I think England's done pretty well. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, look, if they can draw with Scotland, they must be quite good. <laughs> right let's get let's get back you know, to you know I I am uh, I've been a supporter of the Scotland football team for for years and I just I just have to tell you my first memories it really does matter to national identity what's happening to your football team because my first memory is 1961 believe it or not I'm sorry to say so and it, it, the match wasn't even on television it was on radio and it was Scotland playing England in 1961 at Wembley and the score was England nine. This is football, nine, Scotland three. And things were so bad. It was a humiliation for Scotland. goalkeeper had let in nine goals at the goalkeeper. After a few months, he, he had to emigrate to Australia because things were so difficult. And even 30 years later, uh, when he met people in Australia, his first question to people coming from Scotland was, "Is it safe to come back?" And, and of course, it wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, so, football is really the repository of national dreams uh, and ambitions and aspirations. And uh, for me, as a young kid growing up at the age of what eight or nine, to find that Scotland had actually lost nine three was 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 a terrible thing to wake up to. And uh, listening to it on the radio and all the goals going, there were players who played in that match who denied that they were in the team, uh, even when they had scored a goal. One of the three goals they. They always gave the impression they were never in that team. So football is a very important carrier of dreams.
0: Yeah, it's not often Scotland scores
1: uh, three goals in a match. But
0: anyway, <laughs> now, yeah, at, at rugby, yes, we do, we, 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 we do, I asked, uh, I asked the students oh, of the seven challenges that you identify, the seven changes that we can make. Which are the ones that most resonate with them? And they went. It may not surprise you. They went for climate, poverty, and uh, and education. So let's maybe dig into those a bit. On on climate. You know, I was with you at the Copenhagen Summit in 2009, Uh, great failure of a summit. You know, I remember one subsequent prime minister saying, you know, people talk about it like Vietnam. They sort of say, you know, you you weren't there. You can't understand how horrific it it was. But at that summit, you and many other leaders
1: stood up and said, unless we act now, it's too late. So is it not already uh, too late? It's almost too late. I, I mean, I don't think the decisions we've made since then, like Paris in 2015 or what's being proposed for the COP26 in Glasgow, are themselves going to do enough to halt the, the, the progress of, uh, if you like, uh, climate uh, disaster. Uh, so we've got to do more. But if you go back to 2009, when, when we were there together at this uh, summit, what's really interesting about climate change decisions is this is not like a G7, the seven richest countries. You've got 194 countries all at this meeting. It's effectively one person, one vote. And I remember when we arrived, I think you'll remember too, that one delegate was challenging the right of the Danish because it was in Copenhagen, even though they were hosting it and paying for it, They're challenging the right of them to chair the conference. So it was absolutely chaotic and anarchic. And so every leader was going up and giving his speech, but there was no method of making a decision. There was no chance of getting an agreement if you had to get 194 people around a table so we formed a small executive, but that descended into chaos as well. And there was a huge, uh, there was almost a, a, a fight between some of the delegates because people were uh, were feeling that, uh, the, 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 you know, they couldn't solve the problems and they were insulting each other. So it broke down in chaos. We didn't get the agreement we wanted. We thought that after the success of the G20 on the economy, people would be prepared to work together. But to be honest, China was not ready for an agreement. India was not ready. America was not ready. Only the Europeans were ready, actually, for the sort of agreement that we need. Now, I think when it comes to COP26, there's a greater willingness, China, India, America, to work with Europe to get an agreement. The question is, are we ambitious enough? Because we've got to set, you know, under the under the system, countries set their own targets. There's an agreement about what needs to be done universally, but there is no obligation on a country to take a particular uh, form of action in terms of the target they've got, only to publicize it and to make it Uh, be properly uh, known and understood so we've got to get countries to be more ambitious I think companies have got to now all agree and if they don't by law they should be forced to agree to disclose their carbon footprints we need to know what the the carbon footprints of all these companies are and they need to have mission statements uh, for getting rid of carbon uh, in their portfolios and then we've got to help the poorer countries because they cannot adapt and mitigate unless they get special help to do so Uh, And we promised in 2009 $100 billion uh, to help them. We haven't raised that in the last 11 years. They're 12 years now. And we are promising $100 billion a year from now on. And there's no chance of reaching that unless the richest countries make a decision to help the poorest countries. So we've got a lot of decisions to make. But there is a chance of progress because people realize the need for progress. But are they ambitious enough? Not yet. We've got to make them more ambitious. And that's where. Uh, young people's action comes in, because there's no doubt that the climate change movements have forced change. If it hadn't been for popular pressure, I don't think many governments would have acted. I don't think many companies would be rushing to declare their uh, carbon uh, commitments or uh, anti-carbon commitments. Uh, So popular pressure is necessary. So any of you who are listening, who are involved in some of the, um, the different movements for action on climate change, I would encourage you to intensify your efforts and focus on what can be achieved at COP26, which is uh, the Glasgow conference, and how you can influence that by pressurizing your members of parliament or your governments uh, to do something that is bolder than what they're planning at the moment. It's actually a
0: very relevant question, today, Gordon, from um, Alex Clark, who's one of our uh, geographers here, actually working on the front lines of, of this effort and also leading the, the charge on getting Hartford to, to net zero by 2030. He, it's a political question. It's about the Labour Party, I'm afraid. How does the Labour Party tread a more convincing line between the economically liberalism that we're seeing and the a sort of what he describes as a more superficial brand of of socialism? On so on climate change, how do you get how do you get an issue like that to resonate with the voters? And how can Labour be socially just and economically effective on on climate well, action?
1: Well, that's right. You know, when I when I started in uh, politics and I was the shadow of finance minister for a long time, you know, we thought of economic policy is economic progress and social justice, the two sort of uh, parts of an economic policy. You can't discuss economic policy now without talking about environmental stewardship as part of uh, a trinity of economic objectives. And how you reconcile them is the question, Alec, that has put to us and, 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 and has asked us to consider. Look, when we did what was called the Stern Report about the beginning of the century, and, and we published what was the first detailed study of what we had to do to meet climate change targets, We said, you know, the long term has got to be taken into account and you must take long term actions in preference to just doing things in the short term. So we were asking people if you like to trade off uh, the present for the future. Now, I think it's even clearer and that's why it's a simpler message. Uh, And it's basically, this is the opportunity because if we can invest in renewables, if we can invest in nature itself, if we can invest in the sort of planting trees and everything else, if we can do all these things then we're not only creating a cleaner environment we're actually creating jobs and we're creating a better a better economic future so the two things now go together environmental improvement and economic progress i don't think we should be talking about one at the expense of the other or a long-term objective that has got to be met at the expense of a short term i think we should be talking about how there is a huge opportunity before the world now and it makes sense for this recovery, particularly for building back better, that we concentrate on jobs in renewables, energy efficiency, jobs in, in improving our nature and soil, and the, the, whole, in, the whole land and, and, and seas and everything else. All these things are part, I think, of uh, an economic policy that makes sense in coming out of uh, the COVID. And so, I, I think people have got to be more radical, and I think that's what both environment and economic logic is now telling us. I think I can hear from here the students cheering along uh,
0: to that, uh, and indeed uh, many of our professors as well. Let, let's get into to poverty, uh, Gordon. All the, the challenges you've discussed seem to rely on some form of, of enhanced international coordination and cooperation, and yet all the evidence from your time and since is that they, you know, these systems are bust. You know, are,
1: are they really fixable, or do we have to just start again now? Yeah, I and mean we- there have been some advances. Um- The ozone layer we dealt with on the environment, and that was a big advance. Debt relief for Africa at the beginning of the century. There's been a major reduction in absolute poverty, not the same uh, progress in relative poverty, but absolute poverty is reduced. But it's again rising, and it's rising because of COVID, and it's rising because we have actually not done enough to meet the sustainable development goals. Now, look at this problem. There are 80 million people who are displaced in the world. There are 25 million refugees. How can you... Honor the promise that you will rid people of absolute poverty unless you can deal with some of the problems facing refugees and displaced people, and we're not just—we're not doing it. I mean, I tell the story in the book of a tragic event in Italy, uh, sorry, in Greece, at Maria, the refugee camp, when three teenagers, three teenagers, who had been in this camp, not getting any help whatsoever, they were just really imprisoned in this camp. They were displaced. Uh, Uh, kids uh, in their teens attempted suicide. I mean, this uh, uh, 12, 13, 14, when everything should be in front of you, these kids were driven because they, you know, hope dies when a convoys lost at sea or food can't get through to a besieged town or when, you know, there's no doctors, when in a hospital where people are suffering from a disease that could be cured if we had the right medicines and the right staffing. But hope also dies when, when kids don't have opportunity. And, and, and our humanitarian system is bust. Not because we haven't got great people, great people who are running uh, humanitarian agencies and humanitarian uh, charities, but because we cannot raise the money to pay for the humanitarian aid that is needed. This year, an appeal has gone out, I think, for $35 billion. We may raise half of that, $17 billion. That means we'll raise the equivalent of about $4 a week for every displaced person in the world. 3 or $4 a week. How can that feed, clothe, shelter, educate, give health care $4 a week for the poorest people in the world who are under uh, displacement or are, are, are themselves refugees? Now, we've got to have a better system. Now, I propose in the book that we've got to find a way of getting the World Bank, which could raise the money, but doesn't have the direct remit for humanitarian aid, to work with the United Nations that has the direct remit for humanitarian aid, but doesn't have the money. We've got to find a way of getting those with the resources uh, to help those that don't have the resources but have the responsibility to do so. We've got to make the global system work better. And I hope that when people look at these issues, they don't hold up their hands in horror, say nothing can be done. What they say is, look, there are practical changes we can actually make if we get together. And this will require public pressure, you know, on, on behalf of refugees, on behalf of displaced people, but also on behalf of the world's poor, who are located mainly now in Africa and, and increasingly now in Africa, We've got, we've got to do something to alert the world that you cannot have a civilized world. You're not going to be able to deal with uh, terrorism and all these other issues unless we can deal with some of the fundamental problems that these continents and countries face, uh, which of course comes back to conflict, but also comes back to poverty and the lack of economic justice. Hey there.
0: So, so KP in the chat, actually comes back then to your, your question of hope. And so in the midst of all that you know, despair, I mean, what would you say, KP asks, and I don't think it's the cricketer, but what would you
1: say to a pessimist to convince them that the world is still worth fighting for? It's funny because after the Second World War, 1945-46, and the devastation, and you could say that man was at absolutely zero, and we were dealing with a world that had fallen apart. There was this great meeting uh, between uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, Camus, Albert Camus, Simon de Beauvoir, Andre Moreau, Arthur Kessler, and they all met in Paris. And Camus, whose books were actually the books of an existentialist uh, writer, he said to them all, and he said, didn't we get it all wrong, he said. That's existentialism. Didn't we get it all wrong when we said there were no such thing as moral values? And if we were to admit we were wrong, this is what he was saying to them, would that not be the beginning of hope? And I think hope, is such an important characteristic. You know, I've quoted before Martin Luther King and the great speech he made in in the mid-1960s fighting for American civil rights. And Martin Luther King had prepared a speech for this uh, Washington demonstration, massed people uh, there listening to what he had to say. And he prepared a speech that was technically very good about the case for civil rights and everything else, but it wasn't taking off. Uh, he wasn't making any impact on the audience this was Martin Luther King even then one of the greatest orators but he was making no impact on his audience when one of his uh, uh people with him there was a singer Martin, 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 Jackson she, she she shouted at Martin Martin tell them about the dream tell them about the dream and suddenly Martin reverted to a speech he'd been using previously about you know the dream you know and it was about I dream of a a country where people walk hand in hand, children of all colors and everything else. I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. And suddenly it took off. Suddenly this became the sort of uh, the biggest uh, case uh, ever put, I think, uh, in America and reported as so for, for civil rights. But because he was sending a message of hope, I have a dream of a world that we can create. And I think it's really important that when we're talking about these issues, whether it's poverty or education or whether it's Talking about what we do about vaccinations, or even about uh, the cl- climate change, that we don't reduce these simply to technical issues. We've got to have a mastery of detail. You, you need a mastery of detail. You need to know the questions that are being thrown at you if you're a, a politician or answering for a case that you've got. But you've got to give people a vision of what's possible. And uh, Martin Luther King did that when he said that he had this uh, this this dream, and it captivated people, and has done so ever ever since. And that's why you know Camus was right. The beginning of hope is actually setting out your case in a way that you encourage people that it's uh, it, it really is a big picture that you're presenting of a world that can change. So I think a lot of people
0: watching this, Gordon, and actually if this goes back to a question that um, a colleague here working in the Porter's Lodge this evening asked me not to name him, but asked me to put to you, which is a bit like the person at the Martin Luther King speech. You know, where was this Gordon? You know, when, when you were prime minister, you know. <laughs> I was it so hard to get this message across which i think is you know compelling and it resonates but what, what made it harder to to be heard as prime minister
1: because we were dealing in the shadow of the iraq war we were dealing with uh, people worried about taxation we were dealing with uh, perhaps uh, uh, a tiredness that people thought after 10 11 12 years of a labor government but also During the financial crisis, and you will remember this, Tom, because you were working closely with us uh, then, I kept asking myself, how do I get the message across to the country? You know, what we were saying was the private sector has actually failed here. The banks cannot solve this problem on their own. Governments have got to intervene. But if we're to protect jobs and stop people's mortgages being repossessed and stop businesses going under, we have to spend money. So we will run a deficit, and it will mean that there is debt. And it's an essential element of recovery, because if you have growth, then the deficit will come down as tax revenues come in. Now, how do I get this message across to the public that what we are doing is not spending in a profligate way? We are actually doing the only thing that, as we've seen in this crisis, a sensible government can do, which is to make sure that when the private sector can't do it, you actually step in and make sure that things happen. And I kept saying to myself, how do I get this message across? And I did a few public meetings. But, you know, in the 1930s, when Roosevelt had this terrible sort of uh, depression in America, he did radio talks. And, and that's what captivated people. Fireside chats, they call them. But who would have listened to a radio chat, you know? Or if you decided it wasn't radio, it was television. He was doing it on a Saturday night. Who would have listened to me talking on a Saturday night up against strictly come dancing? And when it came to Twitter and all that, they were not at that stage sufficiently advanced that you could actually have the instant uh, appeal. And I was very slow to understand the power of social media. So I kept asking myself, how do you get your message across in this modern democracy where the means of communication are not really uh, ones that are suited for political messages at all? And so I would love to have gone around the country and spoken at meetings and mass meetings uh, to explain what I was trying to do, but somehow I probably made a mistake, concentrated on getting the crisis sorted, and I think we did, but at the expense of getting my message across, which I I think we didn't. And therefore, I I don't think I'm a different person. (laughs) I don't think I've suddenly changed. I'm maybe a bit older, uh, maybe a bit wiser, uh, because you learn, of course, uh, in in, in, certainly you've got plenty of time to learn uh, from your mistakes. But but I I do think politics lacks the vehicles that we had previously that are resonant for individual citizens. And uh, you tell me how to get your message across, because it is incredibly... Difficult. Now, President Trump did it, but he did it in such in such an aggressive way through social media that I don't think anybody would want that to happen in Britain.
0: Well, maybe, maybe the answer was, as, as Ed Balls uh, discovered, to actually just go and compete in Strictly Come Dancing uh, anyway and get it. Well,
1: I, it I don't think I would have done so well on that. I mean, uh, you know, my my best is getting onto football focus and talking about sport. Uh, I don't think I could have done the dancing, all the singing, uh, all the baking, which he's now doing, Ed Balls. <laughs> Good.
0: I think that's a relief uh, all around. Uh, so, a question actually related to this, uh, Gordon, from, from Professor Pat Roach, who's an astrophysicist, who says, "How do we recover from the loss of trust, honesty, and integrity?" You touched on uh, on Iraq, but I think Pat's also looking more recently. You know, US it's blighted US and UK in recent years. In Italy, Pat says, "You know, there's deep scepticism of political directions and interventions." You know, how do we how do we start to rebuild confidence in
1: politics and, and politicians? Yeah, I think what we've got is, if you like, culture wars, and I think we've seen it on so many different occasions in, re- in recent uh, weeks and months, where uh, what, what seems a relatively small issue, you know, whether the Queen's photograph is up in one of your colleges in Oxford, or whether a statue is, is up, or whether a painting or something in the British Museum is actually to, to, to continue to be there because of race, you know, uh, slavery or other causes of uh, it being there in the, in the first place in the past and these descend into culture wars, and it suits some people to say that is the defining issue of our times. And of course, when you think about it, getting people fed, getting people jobs, getting people vaccinated, getting a decent health service, decent school system, decent universities and everything, these are the issues that worry people. And suddenly they're being told that the most important issue is whether a painting or whether a a statue is up there. And, And we tend to allow ourselves... Partly because of the, you know, social media is basically a shouting match without an umpire. I mean, basically, you've got extremes fighting each other on social media, and then that's replicated in the culture wars. And we've got to say, we cannot allow ourselves, we cannot allow ourselves to be, if you like, captured by and submerged in culture wars. We've got to see the bigger picture, that these are not the real issues. Poverty is an issue, deprivation is an issue, ignorance is an issue, squalor is an issue, pollution is an issue, war and conflict are issues, but the issues that we tend to see the front pages of our newspapers focusing on are not the real issues, and we've got to find a way of saying, look, let's get to the crucial issues, and then you can start to rebuild trust. I mean, no politician will get everything right. No politician will do anything other than make many, many mistakes, because these are these are difficult judgments, especially in a time like this. But if you can rebuild trust by people seeing that you're not trying to divert from the issue, you're actually facing the issue, then I think uh, people can be persuaded that uh, politics is, if you like, in some sense, rehabilitated and is worth, uh, you know, it, it is about public service in the end. It's, it's not about uh, people presenting themselves as, as heroes or idols or um, celebrities. It's, it's about changing the world through people serving the public.
0: I just related to that, so Charlie Hancock says that she heard you on the podcast with Christian and Gary Murphy, who is, by the way, studied here at Hartford. Uh, yeah,
1: he got a good education.
0: Uh, so he had a good start uh, in life. Um, and you were talking about culture wars as a distraction. So the question is, uh, what are they distracting young people from? Of all these issues that you're looking at in the book, you might not be surprised that that we hear are most excited about climate change, poverty, education. Are there any of those issues that you think
1: aren't cutting through to this generation that, that we should worry more about? I think peace and war, actually. I think nuclear weapons. If, if I were to wake up in the morning and think when I was prime minister, what, what was one of the gravest problems we still face? There is still a sort of Damocles, as John Kennedy talked about, hanging over us. I mean, we have got nine nuclear weapon states. We've got other states wanting to be nuclear weapon states. We've got the potential to destroy ourselves uh, in one go. And uh, as, as, as Kennedy said, if we don't abolish nuclear weapons, they will abolish us. And yet there's been very, very little progress over the last um, 30 years. I studied uh, what happened between Reagan and Gorbachev. And, you know, Reagan was a very, uh, you know, right wing, anti-communist figure. When Olaf Palme, the the Swedish prime minister, wanted to meet him and he refused and kept refusing and then eventually met him. Reagan said to, to people about Olaf Palme, he was a Social Democrat prime minister, isn't he a communist? And his, his staff said, no, Mr. President, he's an anti-communist. And Reagan said, I don't care what kind of communist he is. And this was a Reagan uh, uh, anti-communist, but he eventually came to an agreement with Gorbachev. And apparently they were meeting in, uh, in Switzerland before the Reykjavik summit that, that in a sense, uh, brought to an end the arms race for the time being. And, and Reagan, who was interested in Star Wars and all that sort of thing, and he said to Gorbachev, if an asteroid came to the Earth, uh, would you help us and attack and an attacked america would you help us and, uh, and garbage said of course we would and, and and reagan said we too we'd help you and the bond was was made and they got a settlement on on weapons but 30 years on we had an international space station where russian and american uh, astronauts are up there together you know still still above us but the tensions uh, are, are still great and nuclear weapon proliferation is happening uh, weapons are more sophisticated some of the old agreements have broken down and there's not the sort of uh, understanding that could prevent misrepresentation and misunderstandings happening. We've got a new entrant in a big way, which is China, uh, and we've got Korea, Iran, and we've got the possibility of an arms race in the Middle East. I I think we've got to think about uh, how we can de-escalate this. And I still hold to the view that if we could ban nuclear tests, if we could end the production of plutonium and uranium, which I think is possible, And if countries would commit and say that they would not be the first to use nuclear weapons, and unless people use nuclear weapons against them, they would never use nuclear weapons, I think we could get to a sensible solution that would downgrade the role of nuclear weapons and eventually eliminate them. I think we've got to give that some attention because it's an outstanding uh, issue about our security that people really don't talk about now, but it's still a big problem.
0: Quick question on um, poverty and refugees and coming back really to your wider work on uh, on education. This is from, from Petros, who's a, a professor of biochemistry uh, here. He's he's picking up on the, the comments you made about uh, Lesbos and, and the support to refugees there. He's saying, but it's a political decision by the EU forming these camps to keep refugees away from Europe. Do you think we should change that?
1: I've always believed that if the European Union had been more generous in the initial stages and helped refugees temporarily place themselves in in Lebanon, Jordan, and in uh, Turkey, uh, then a lot of the pressure to leave the country and go to Europe would not have happened. Now, if we, you were in Lebanon, so you know that there were, I think, a million uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. And Lebanon, despite all its difficulties, did quite a lot to help these uh, refugees. But when it came to Turkey and uh, Jordan, the money was not there to do what was needed. So people left. People remember this story, perhaps, of Alan Kurdi, who was this young refugee boy in this red T-shirt who was washed up on the Mediterranean. And this four-year-old died because his boat capsized as his family tried to take him uh, from Turkey uh, across uh, into Europe. And they paid a lot of money for this, but the boat was ramshackle and it collapsed and he died within a few minutes of, of being on that boat. And we saw these photographs all over the world. But what people didn't know was that the family was trying to get him out of the country because they thought it was the only chance of getting him an education. He couldn't get one in Syria, couldn't get one in Turkey, thought the only way is to come to Europe. In fact, he was wanting to go to Canada, the, the father, and it ended up in this tragedy, paying money simply because they couldn't get an education for the child in the vicinity of, of Syria. And we should have done more. And I think uh, that was the first mistake that was made. Uh, And then, of course, what we've seen in Europe, unfortunately, is this populist nationalism. The resistance to to immigrants is happening even in countries where there are hardly any immigrants. And Hungary is a very good example, I'm afraid, where you've got this popular frenzy whipped up by the Prime Minister, Orbán, against immigration, even although only 6% of Hungary's population have been born outside Hungary. And as someone said, there are more anti-immigrant parties in, in Hungary today than there are immigrants. It's as bad as is as bad as that. And he whipped up. So that poster, remember that poster in the British referendum, Breaking Point, the one that Nigel Farage put up with all the uh, what he portrayed as Muslim hordes trying to get into, into Britain and walking with no women and no children. They were all blanked out. The photograph was only of bearded men trying to come into what he said was Britain, although it was actually a photograph taken elsewhere. That poster, Breaking Point, then reappeared in Hungary under the heading Stop, the same poster the same anti-immigrant, the same xenophobic propaganda, and, and really Europe, I'm afraid, uh, has fallen for this populist nationalism. And we, we've really got to take it head on and say, look, you can be patriots, but you don't need to present the world as a struggle between us and them at every point where you've got to actually win in some sort of zero-sum game where everybody else has got to lose so that you can win.
0: So since, um, since you mentioned Europe, uh, I know you want to talk about changing the world, but you um closer to home this is a question you, you will recognize uh, the fingerprints of my predecessor will hutton uh, on this one but also uh tyriel run um, who is a master student here from norway and the president of the oxford diplomacy society you're a rejoiner you've come out as a rejoiner now how are you going to reconcile that with the electoral reality uh, in the uk
1: I, i've said that uh, i didn't want to leave and i would like to be back in europe I've not said that I'm able to persuade either the Labour Party or other uh, parties that they're going to do this um, overnight. I think what we've got to concentrate on in the meantime, and Norway knows all about this, because Norway has voted to stay out of uh, the European Union, but has a good relationship with the Union. union. I think we've got to think about how instead of it becoming a punch bag, you know, I'm anti-Europe to be pro-British. And so it's always Britain versus Europe instead of britain and europe we've got to find some relationship and that includes ireland of course we've got to find some relationship where europe and the united kingdom can work better together and I, I you know if you have a referendum in the heat of that people people say things and people promise to do things but really there is no future for britain if there is not a constructive relationship with the, the rest of the rest of europe and uh, well i want to rejoin i accept that that's not possible in the short term but i do think we should build a strong constructive and positive relationship with Europe. And we could cooperate on things like Erasmus, which is the training uh, of young people, and scientific cooperation by extending horizon. We can do it on infrastructure with the European Investment Bank. And gradually, I think we can build a far more positive relationship uh, with Europe, as we should do coming up to COP26 on climate change, because we and the European Union are absolutely crucial to getting an agreement on climate change. And and all these challenges, you described a world
0: where the international system can't needs fixing. Uh, national leadership is is lacking. We need more individual engagement and agency. Is there a role, I mean, sorry to be parochial in all this, but is there a role for universities? It, what would you like to see places like Oxford
1: doing better? I think we need to show that we can cooperate better with other countries and other institutions. I mean, I would like students to be linked up to universities in Africa and Asia. I would like uh, to see universities themselves in far more cooperative relationships with uh, other institutions and in other countries. I know this happens, but I think we can extend it. When you think of the challenge of education in the future, it's not only going to be multidisciplinary. In fact, you need lots of skills—the skills to communicate, to collaborate, and all these sort of things that demand contact and connection and communication. But also, I, I think we need to find ways to work together to solve common research problems that we're, we've got in uh, to deal with. Uh, and also, of course, uh, as simply transfers of students so that people understand each other. I mean. I um, was involved in creating the Mandela scholarship in Africa, which is for students from Africa to be able to study at other universities in other countries. We don't have, you know, we've got the Fulbright and we've got the Kennedy and we've got all these other scholarships. I was talking earlier to you, Tom, I think we need a refugee scholarship. I think we need to be able to bring refugees to universities in Britain and elsewhere and find a way of paying for them. And we need to, to benefit from the fact that this is an interdependent world that societies that once were homogeneous are now far more heterogeneous, uh, that London is one of the most international cities in the world. Uh, and, and, and obviously, your U- university is one that uh, has students from every country in the world. And I think we've got to build on that by building greater and stronger connections for the future. And
0: uh, with apologies for being controversial, but, you know, an intervention once in the distant past on Oxford has excited some of our, our questioners. Yeah. Um, do you think we're doing better on access than when you
1: criticised Oxford? Uh, I can't remember how many, but when you were chancellor? Yes. Uh, look, you know, I, I uh, felt very uh, concerned about the very high proportion of uh, pupils from state schools that didn't get into Oxford and Cambridge, and that was also... The very high number that were uh, that were capable of applying and didn't feel that the university was for them. So I admire Oxford and Cambridge as institutions. I wanted to see them have a wider base, if you like, uh, to build from. And you know, in any society, it's the widest possible base of talent you've got to build from to get the best students and the best educated uh, people and look i worry and i think oxford is doing a lot better and your college particularly but i worry about a world that is now divided between the education rich and the education poor and in one of the chapters in the in in, in the book uh, seven ways to change the world i talk about this new divide so it's not just rich poor it's education rich and education poor And this divide is actually growing between the education rich who can command high salaries and and rightly so because of their abilities and their talents, they've got to be properly rewarded because of the merit and the work they've done, but the huge gap between the education rich and the education poor. Now, that was not as true after the Second World War as it is now. And I do worry about the divisions that then grow in your society and the lack of cohesion that exists because you've got one group that is doing well and another group that feels left behind. And a lot of the populist nationalism that we're seeing around the world is people who feel that they're left behind, they're not listened to, they're not consulted, they're not taken into account, they're treated in many ways as second-class citizens. So I think we've got to be aware that this is a 75-25% world that I, I talk about in the book. 75% now who do not have qualifications from education. who You know, you know, even, even now, half the world's schoolchildren leave school without any qualifications that are worthy of anything in the workplace but in total once you include adults it's 75 percent of the world that's unqualified if you like as against the 25 percent who are or will be in the next 10 or 20 years and unless we do something to extend educational opportunity across the world and I'm thinking particularly of the poorest countries of the world uh, where you know large numbers of people you know never get education beyond 10 And of course, there's still 260 million, probably more than that, 300 million children now who don't go to school at all, even although they're school-aged children. We've got to do something about that.
0: I can't believe it, but somehow we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask one last quick question, which comes from uh, Niall Chaban, which is how dangerous or helpful to all these challenges uh, is social media? I noticed, Gordon, you've you've recently joined Twitter.
1: Uh, yeah, my wife Sarah has been on Twitter for years and she's, she's got more than a million followers. And uh, I've always been embarrassed when I've not actually spent any time trying to, to, to build up any audience in, in Twitter. Uh, look, Twitter has its place, so does Facebook, so does everything else. But I do worry about the way algorithms are used to direct people to particular causes or to particular extreme positions. And I do worry about the lack of proper regulation of of, of social media. I think this is becoming a problem that is going to divide our society even further. So I would like us to have a discussion. I mean, I don't have all the answers and I don't think anybody really does have all the answers, but I know Tim Berners-Lee very well uh, and he's been a very good friend of mine. And I do believe he's right to say that it's wrong that your information is held by someone else and you've got no right to have the information about yourself in the way that you should have. And I do also worry about the the way that social media companies go about driving their agenda for both money and for what is controversial. So we end up with a very divided society. I think we've got to think about the consequences of that. So everything that's good about social media, we we want to retain, uh, which is the openness, the transparency. Everybody gets the chance to put their views but everything that is dangerous, I think we've got, we've got to look at very, very closely as a society. Uh, and you can't have so much control being exercised by such a small group of people in a way that actually colours or polarises public debate.
0: Someone once asked me um, why it was that you weren't uh, a more active uh, user of social media. And I said, well, the problem with Gordon is that in order to write a tweet, he has to write a speech. and In order to write a speech, he has to write a book. And here we are. You've written the book in order to be able to to write the tweets. But in a way, looking back on it, thank goodness that there are people out there who are willing to do the work, to, to do the substantive thinking before leaping
1: to the soundbite, before leaping to the... Uh, the tweet. I think the real problem, Tom, is that uh, I, I'm a two finger typist. And uh, every time I type something, I, I make uh, incredible mistakes because my right hand is faster than my, my left hand. And when I, I used to type my essays at university, and one of my lecturers uh, used to say, You've finally convinced me that typing can be as illegible as writing. And I, I, I think I proved that. And so, and when someone put my uh, emails uh, through the uh, the test of Google, it came out as they thought it was probably Danish rather than English. Uh, I, my my spelling was uh, so bad and the, the the letters were all in the wrong place. So I think that's one of the reasons why I haven't focused much on Twitter.
0: <laughs> I've kept some of those emails for um for the British Museum to look at. You'll again. not be
1: able to understand them, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> so don't worry, they're they're under lock and key. Gordon, thank you so much. It, I mean it's perhaps a kind of testimony to the extraordinary answers you've given that. I actually have a message in from one of Barack Obama's main advisors who was with us back at that summit that I described at the beginning of the discussion. And he, and he says, Gordon, still has a plan.
1: Uh, and I think you've shown us all tonight that. Um, you've- I think Barack Obama had a few plans as well. I mean, he created a wonderful uh, change in the American health system. And I think he, he showed people that change is possible in America. So um, I, I should have said that when we were talking about Barack Obama, he did make a huge difference to the, to the way the world works
0: so thank you so much thank you to everyone for the brilliant questions thank you to How To Academy for uh, co-hosting it Uh, thank you to colleagues at Hartford College uh, for getting it all set up and most of all I think we'd love to give you a a virtual uh, standing ovation Gordon thank you for such fantastic answers and for giving us this time uh, this evening
1: thank you
2: this week's podcast starred Gordon Brown and was presented by Tom Fletcher it was produced by Luke Leilapero and myself and edited by John Doughty. We're returning to the world of live events this autumn with two of our first shows already on our website. Philosopher and activist Bernard-Henri Lévy will be here telling us about his 50 years of reportage from the world's overlooked crisis zones and Harvard's Stephen Pinker will be asking whether rationality is in short supply in the contemporary world. You can find out more about both at howtoacademy.com, alongside a host of upcoming live streams, all of which are included as part of our subscription service, How to Plus. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.